Hey everyone, you're tuned into InfoQuench with Jeff and Amy. Join us as we talk about anything and everything. All the stuff that makes life interesting. So let's get to it. Hey everybody and welcome to InfoQuench. I'm your host Jeff. And I'm Amy. And this is part two of the book where we're talking about the book Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel. This is the part where I hold up the cover so Jeff can remember which book we were talking about. And that's exactly what she did. If we had it on video, it would be on video, but it's not on video. So we gave a lot of background in part one. So if you haven't checked out part one yet, Charlie's saying, check it out. You can hear him meowing in the background. (laughs) Get going, kid. (laughs) Hopefully he won't be puking up any fur balls in the middle of this episode. We'll see. I referenced that I had shared a quote by Viktor Frankl long before I read this book. And I had shared it on Instagram. And I just wanted to start this episode off with that quote. And it was, um, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Yes. Someone else said something quite similar to that. I just recently read that quote, but it was very, very simple. It was something like, when we... When we really want something to change, we need to change ourselves or something something along those lines. Be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, maybe. There are a few different, I guess, uh, you know, quotes that are similar to that. But I had shared that quote thinking it was fitting in light of the pandemic that we were going through, not realizing, uh, again, that, you know, Viktor Frankl, uh, I didn't know who he really was in terms of being, uh, being an author and being the author of this particular book and his experience in concentration camps. But, um, and you were saying that that, that, a powerful quote. that is part of the first section of the book. The first half of the book is based upon his, you know, harrowing uh, experience in a concentration camp and stuff. But then it right. changes, right? So if you haven't listened to part one, listen to part one definitely to sort of get that background. One. Because, yes, definitely the first part of this book is around his experience in the concentration camps. And then uh, the latter part of the book discusses a bit around his methods of, uh, of therapy. Uh, because he is a psychiatrist. So just to to read a brief section from the book that I felt relates to the quote that I had shared. Uh, In the book, he talks about that man is not fully conditioned and determined, but rather determines himself whether he gives in to conditions or stands up to them. In other words, man is ultimately self-determining. Man does not simply exist, but always decides what his existence will be, what he will become in the next moment. That's right. I, I would agree with that. We decide our own destiny. Our destiny isn't decided for us, I feel. You know what I mean? We sort of, uh, you know, right the ship and make and turn it to, you know, we navigate the waters. So I can have all kinds of little... Uh, metaphors. <laughs> metaphors and, and stuff. And I know, and, and I know, and our listeners don't even get to see your hand gestures. I, I know, I'm doing, is, I'm doing quite a loss. the hand gestures of the, the directions that the ship can go in because that is really what our life can do. Or not do, depending on which way you want to go. You well, know? and it's I think it's really it's a powerful way to look at things. And I think when we're in the midst of a, a situation that's out of our control, a particularly negative situation, it, it's comforting to know that there are still some freedoms left. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, the, and I guess the ultimate freedom is that we decide how we're g- going to react to any situation. Yeah, I agree with that. And that there is, you know, a responsibility that comes with that freedom. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, the other things that's referenced in this book that I feel is very fitting now for our our neighbors south of the border is that uh, is, uh, Victor Frankl promoted the idea of the fact that he felt the Statue of Liberty on the east coast of the United States should be balanced with a statue of responsibleness 
on the West Coast because oh. he felt with freedom comes responsibility. And when we think about what's happening in terms of the pandemic situation and how there are a lot of views around freedom and the and associating that with rights. Yeah. You know, whether it's um, even rights to bear bear arms, rights, uh, freedom of assembly or, or all or the... Wear a uh, mask. Yeah. So, and people feeling that wearing a mask is against their personal rights, their personal freedoms, their personal liberties. Incidentally, just tonight during the most recent Trump rally, they, they came over the loudspeaker and said, everybody, please put on a mask if you have one. And they booed them. So there you go. So that's how strongly people feel about their rights. No matter what it is, they can decide to do it or not to do it. So they're being self-determined, right? So he, exactly. And he mm. felt that that should, so those rights or that, that liberty should be balanced with responsibleness, right? Yeah. That we need to also have some responsible. And I think that, you know, we're, uh, we are responsible for the wellness of our community as a whole. And, and that's why. There's a part though. This in- is a little PSA, wear your masks. Yeah, yeah. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. But there's a part where that responsibility, though, that you feel can be, uh, you know, directed in a negative way, that can definitely hinder the progress of civilization. You know, because we're seeing it right now. I mean, not to get too political, but in, in south of the border, Trump is sort of, you know, making a lot of, uh, you know, making a lot of people feel like they're self-determined to do the right thing when it certainly isn't you know? well it's irresponsible it's irresponsible exactly yeah i mean it's it's uh it's yeah, anyway yeah we've just lost all our trump supporters as listeners oh great oh, well see you later <laughs> cry me a river <laughs> all right back to the book so another thing that victor frankel really talks a lot about in the book is just the importance of hope in getting through a situation and i can't even imagine what it would be like in a concentration camp situation but he does talk about how when somebody has lost hope, they would they could pick up on that, and yeah. it, and, and often death would soon follow. Yeah. So he talks about the idea, for instance, that cigarettes would be given out as a reward, maybe for, you yeah. know, especially hard work, or I, I think they got very few rewards in the concentration camp, but the odd time they would get cigarettes, or, and most of the people who were there would trade those cigarettes in for soup. Yeah. Because soup was going to sustain life. Yeah. So he said, alive. oftentimes when he would, when they would see somebody who would just be decide to give in and just smoke their cigarettes, they knew that they had had given yeah. up and that they were just going for those last few pleasures in life, and that and that soon they would be. They didn't need soup, right? Because yes, they were, their time remaining was short, I guess, on the earth. Yeah. It's like their cigarette was, you know. Yeah. And he talked about, you know, that that. The highest frequency of deaths in the camp by far was the week between Christmas and New Year's because many people would get through the year with the the hope or the thought of being home for Christmas with their families, and, and when, when that wouldn't passed. come to fruition, then you know they would. And it, it, it's just yeah. as much as uh, I'm very much a person of science. I also understand it's undeniable the tie between someone's mindset and and how that influences you know their immunology and how they're able to fight off something he he even talks about one man who had dreamt and uh during his time in the camp that he would be released on a on a specific day mm-hmm. on uh on march 30th and so he'd had this dream i think it was in january february that they would be released from the camp and and he really clung to that and that was his hope and when March salvation. 30th came and they were still there, 
he fell into despair and he passed away the following day. Yeah. Wow. And I think that that does speak to the timing and the power of, of the human mind and mm-hmm. absolutely and hope and, and, and trying to get yourself to get through that and that people would very much seek comfort in thoughts of their future and beyond. And, and he said that, you know, a prisoner, not, a, not somebody who's in the concentration camps, but just a prisoner who's in prison for a crime would actually be, they, they were very envious of that person's situation because they had an end date. Yeah. And he said the thing about being in a concentration camp is they had no end date. So to have that it was in your mind and eternal not, hell. It is and with and, and completely indefinite and with no news of of uh, you know where where the battlefront was and and what what was taking place in the world around them. They you know they were completely cut off from that. So that yeah. was you know that was incredibly taxing on people mentally. So again, as as a psychiatrist, he he did reflect on all of those mental pieces of it. Yeah, no, I, I and as a psychiatrist, you would have to, you know, there would be so many different facets to, to uh, you know, delve into. Do you feel that the the mind has absolutely control over, like if you're if you're sick or yeah. do you feel like you know the how mind and the body? Like there's stories. Does optimism about, help you pull through? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if if you're optimistic. That is what I would, uh, you know, you know how whenever something really bad happens in society, people send thoughts and prayers. Well, that's fine and dandy, but it doesn't really fix the problem, right? But if you're being optimistic, you're going to, like I said earlier, guide your ship in a way that leads you to make decisions that are, that leads to more optimistic decisions and, you know, and outcomes, and so I, I feel being optimistic is extremely important in all of life. Well, so that's interesting that you use the example of thoughts and prayers because that's often put on when you see a social media post, Facebook yes. or or whatever, and and somebody's going through a hard situation. People will write thoughts and prayers, and then you'll sort of see the people who maybe don't follow a particular religion and don't necessarily pray will say, you know, sending positive thoughts your way. Yeah. So if you think of it from that perspective, but then there are also then those the power pe- of. I'm per- sorry. I'm trying to cut you off. I, I just didn't want to lose my thought. You weren't successful. I was aggressive I just, in the I know you were good. Structure. Go ahead. Go, 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 go. <laughs> I wasn't even stopping for a breath. No, I know. It's um, good. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. <laughs> so where was, what the heck were we talking about? Oh, yeah, no, thoughts and, thoughts and prayers. So yeah. if you think about the idea that mindset does have a powerful influence, then the idea of prayer or whatever that may mean for you, if you're you not, you know, if you're just spiritual or you're mm-hmm. just positive vibes or however you want to word it can definitely have an impact if yeah but if if the person themselves hears that and it it puts their mindset into into more of a mindset of hope but thoughts and prayers to me i mean i uh, taking out the religious aspects of prayers and stuff and what people believe prayer to be it's it's just like a cloud to me it doesn't really do anything like you know what i mean but being optimistic about change does change something do you know what I mean? But like sending say... thoughts and prayers is not going to change the problem that they're, thend- they're sending the thoughts and prayers about. Like if there's another mass shooting at a school and stuff, if you send thoughts and prayers, that's just like a lazy way to say, yeah, I'm thinking of you or whatever. Okay, I understand what you're saying there. And I mean, I definitely in situations like that, action is by far right. the most important thing. But if you're sending thoughts and prayers to somebody who's fighting you know, cancer or terminal yeah. illness or uh, just going through a difficult time, 
if reading those positive messages influence their influences their own mindset to be more positive, and you've you've mentioned that yeah. you feel that having a positive mindset can help your immunology or yeah. help you fight off something, then maybe there is a bit of a benefit of having yeah, that out there. I think that there's um, I think that there's benefit in being optimistic about any sort of situation you can think of in life, but then you know when you send clouds when you send like things that don't even really exist to try and fix a problem well it'll never fix the problem do you know what I mean I do I yes I think we and I agree with that like I think it's so being optimistic about an actual bona fide change is what really people need I don't see positive thoughts throwing positive thoughts flowing through the air and magically fixing an issue that it needs to be addressed with action but I do feel like somebody personally thinking more positively yeah. will have an effect on their own immune system yeah. to deal with whatever they're dealing with and affect their mindset if they're going through a difficult situation yeah. just to know other people are thinking of them. Absolutely, so, yeah. You know, maybe it's not... In that way, there is a little bit of optimist optimism included in like just thinking about somebody. Yes. You know what I mean? But there, with everything in life, there can be... a a negative and a positive repercussion of anything that you do, right? Somebody will look at that and say, well, somebody, people do look at thoughts and prayers and think it's completely useless. It's like, no, there's no point in doing it at all. Like, it's just like, that's not going to change the school shootings. Like, why? Thoughts and prayers, we need action, you know? But if it is directed towards a specific individual and they're seeing that and that helps them feel better, then 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 it's definitely incredibly powerful. that's definitely a good positive thing. So I think we're in agreement on this one. I think we're agreeing. We beat on that this. dead horse. It's a really interesting conversation, though. Hopefully, our listeners are, you know, thinking about these sort of concepts on their own. You know, like in their own particular way. Are I'm, you? <laughs> Just I am. I'm going to jump to another piece that I had talked about in, in part one. Was and it's something that has always been so hard for me to grasp is how human beings can do what they did to other human beings oh, in the context, you know, particularly, I guess, specifically speaking around the Holocaust, but I mean, in general world yeah. over. Are you familiar with that? Sorry. I, I know you might even be ready to talk about this right now, but I'm not sure. But are you familiar with that <laughs> psychological experiment where just was a regular person that would press a button that would shock somebody. And then the, the, uh, the person doing the the uh, experiment was saying, "Okay, but if you hit this button, you could you could kill them." And then, like some people actually hit the button just to see what would happen. Just a regular person, just like you or me or anybody. You oh, really? I mean? Yeah. No, I, 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 I've I guess, not heard of that. Oh, specific. I should uh, I should have had a little bit more background on it, but yeah, it was just like they they you know they believed somebody because they had like you know their the the scientific you know garb on and stuff and they were like being very sincere and saying okay you, you need to press this button i'm sure that there are other parameters of the experiment that i'm not remembering but like that's the gist of it okay and yeah. then you're saying the person would then hit the button that would hurt the person yeah it, which could potentially kill the person like they, they you know the person saying but why just to see just, if the be, scientists just to see the if a regular person is capable of doing that kind of thing that was, that was the whole experiment just to see if anybody, oh they would be directed to do yeah that. they'd be directed to do it so oh. it, it would definitely probably tie right into the book that you read. Okay. To a man's search, like you know what was happening at, at the, uh, 
concentration camps and whatnot, you know. Okay. That's people. a horrible experiment. I know, I know it is, but like, yeah, it, it, it was done. I, I'm gonna. <laughs> Whenever have to, it took place and whoever. Did yeah, it, whoever, it was, I know. I should have. I, I just know of it, but I don't know what to, what the heck it's called or anything. But yeah. Uh, but no, I was speaking specifically around you know the the camp guards. So yeah. So Victor Frankel, being a psychiatrist, was also interested in what the psychological makeup would, uh, was of the camp guards. So he did talk about. Uh, four reasons of, or four, I guess, explanations around how people could do this. How is it possible of men, that men of flesh and blood could treat others I've always as so that many as well. pre- prisoners say they have been treated is what is how he referenced it. And I mean, he was there and he experienced it. So first of all, he said that among the guards, there were some sadists and sadists in the purest clinical sense. So people who derive pleasure from causing pain to others exist in the general population and they yeah. existed in the guard population. So he said, of course, there were, um, you know, just law of averages. There were people who actually enjoyed. I'm sure somebody who isn't pain. a sadist could be conditioned to be one as well. The, the, the Nazis were probably... Right. Well, quite, and he, I guess, his, so I guess his, his idea was first that the, yeah. there are people who are naturally Absolutely, born yeah. sadists. Yep. Then second of all, he said that the sadists were the ones who were chosen to take out, to carry out the most, you know, sinister of tasks. Yeah. So when they had, it had a particularly, um, you know, brutal work duty, or perhaps it was somebody who was in charge of, of, uh, the gas chambers and, and that, uh, you know, the, that piece of it, they were selected because they were sadists and people knew that they would carry that out and yeah. they would carry it out with pleasure. So that's that was sort of the second reasoning around. The third the third point he had around it was that that the the majority of the guards, those you know, those who weren't sadists, they're just regular regular people, um, their feelings had just simply been dulled. By the yeah. number of years conditioned from uh, in which in like in ever increasing doses they had witnessed brutal methods at the camp and he would say that these morally and mentally hardened men at least refused to take active part in the sadistic measures but they did not prevent others from carrying them out so they normalized were, it they were sort of the bystanders and i mean we see that in a lot of situations even you know now there are a lot of times things happen Brutal situations will happen in the public and bystanders will sit there and witness it. Yeah. And not take part in preventing it. So there were, uh, excuse me, a huge number of guards mm-hmm. who uh, who did just stand by. And then I guess, and then the fourth point around this is he said that even among the guards, there were, there were some good ones. There were people who took pity on them. Mm-hmm. And he actually references a commander of the camp that he realized afterward, after he was released that that particular commander had spent a lot of his own personal money to go into the a nearby town to buy medicine for people who were suffering in the concentration camps uh, to, to help knowing keep full them. well that a lot of them wouldn't make it though which is well interesting no, but they're, they're, you know they had typhus outbreaks yeah. and that sort of thing so he would he would spend his own money to do that right and there was actually one and I think it was that particular commander that when their camp was liberated some of the uh, the prisoners actually hid the commander from the troops in the woods and and to protect him uh-huh. and wouldn't release him until they promised not to hurt him because they really felt strongly that this was a good man who was forced into a difficult position and yeah so I, I guess I mean the message around that is he he felt you know the author felt that there were not 
by virtue of being a prisoner, they were not all angels. You know, not all, all prisoners were angels and not all guards were devils. Yeah. He, he said there were good it. and bad amongst both groups of people, just as there is in the general population. Yeah. So that did see shed a little Nazis bit of light for being, me on, on how people, yeah. on, 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 I guess, the psychology behind. It's still hard. To, it's still f- freaking hard to get your head around what, what happened. What I happened. Know. I, it, I, I agree. But I can, I can see the Nazis being very uh, adept at finding those people who are, that fit into the roles the best, you know, like the sadists, they, they would sniff them out and put them in where they needed to go, you know, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, you're right. It, it's, it's, it's horrible. You're right. I mean, it was a manip- it was a manipulation of people and, yeah. and you see it the world over, you see it with cults, you see it, you know, there are individuals who are able to manipulate others yeah. and they normalize have them do things that would, they wouldn't otherwise do. They normalized evil. <laughs> so essentially what they did, you know, I want to get into the latter part of the book where yeah. Victor Frankel talks about therapy. And what's fascinating about this is he references the fact that he had a manuscript drafted before he went into the concentration camps and it was confiscated from him and destroyed. I think they burned it from in front of him and it was his life's work, but he had developed a, a method of therapy even before going through this experience. What was it called? It was called logotherapy. Logotherapy. And this is interesting because the word logo, which we always think about with brands, yeah. uh, you know, a logo for a brand or a company. Uh, logo is actually the Greek word for meaning, which makes sense when you think about brands. But logotherapy is the idea of uh, using, you know, the meaning of life or uh, man's search for meaning as a means of therapy. So in addressing things like I mentioned his work uh, in part one around suicide prevention and dealing with people who are going through depression and anxiety. So he would use uh, logotherapy. So as I guess in contrast to that, uh, at the time, Freud was uh, his school of thought and his school of uh, therapy was around the idea that man was motivated by pleasure. You know, right. so we talk about, you know, the id, the yeah, ego, the, the ego. super ego. Yeah. And Victor Frankl actually corresponded with Freud in his younger years when he, he was quite... when he was studying psychiatry. And at, later on, he had, you know, he basically had went, went along on a, a different path and came yeah. up with his own school of therapy. And then he also studied Adler. And so where Freud focused on pleasure, Adler focused on power. So Adler's school of, of thought in terms of psychiatry was that we're, we're all motivated by success and power and, you know, that idea yeah. of achievement and that that's what our chief, our, our chief motivator is in life. But Viktor Frankl felt, thought that the meaning of life is really what drives people and can help with, you know, giving direction when people are going through depression and, and that sort of thing. So... So it is the search for meaning that it is. he believed directed people's uh, life, lives. Really. He felt it was key. He felt it was a key piece yeah. of, of, you know, people that a lot of times people were going through an existential crisis. And that was the source of, a, you know, a lot of, of people's issues. He also believed, you know, that there were, you know, chemical imbalances that needed to be addressed by medication and, and, uh, in terms of you know, yeah. uh, you know, basic psychology, but he did feel also that there were a lot of people that could be just helped with finding meaning and, and purpose in their life. So I just want to read a passage that where he talks a little bit about the meaning of life, and 
he states that uh, he, I doubt whether a doctor can answer this question in general terms around the meaning of life. For the meaning of life differs from man to man, from day to day, and from hour to hour. What matters, therefore, is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at any given moment. Mm. So, and he puts this like as for for reference, like he puts the question in general terms. It would be comparable to asking like a chess champion, "Tell me, master, what's the best move in the world?" Right. Well, there's no such move, right? It's it's uh, it depends on the particular situation. It depends on the uh, the opponent. That's a really great analogy. And, and you love chess too. You must, you must have <laughs> ate that one right up. I did. Actually, I, I think like, you chess. ate the whole the whole book. I up. love this quote. It says chess in it. I'm all over it. <laughs> Sold. Um, <laughs> but he says the same holds true for human existence. That one should not search for an abstract meaning of life. Everyone has their specific, their own specific vocation or mission in life, to carry out a concrete assignment which demands fulfillment. Therefore, therein he cannot be replaced nor can his life be repeated. Thus, everyone's task is as unique as his specific opportunity to implement it. So that kind of goes back to, in part one, I talked a little bit about the idea of everybody's very unique yeah. in, in who they are and that we all have sort of our own special role to play. We definitely do. We definitely do. I, I, I'm realizing uh, more and more, because this is part two of this uh, podcast based on this one book, is that... I really need to read this book. <laughs> you I def- think you definitely. Do. I think I, I think it would be beneficial. It would have been very beneficial if I had read it before we did these podcasts. So maybe we can revisit this book after I read it at a later date. We yes, can, we, we can, can do get, another podcast. I'd like to get your take on what, what you took away. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I mean, maybe I don't even need to read it because you're giving me the. <laughs> well, no, you know, it's so gems. packed with stuff that I, I bet you different things would speak to you than they do to me. Mm. So when he, when he talks about the meaning of life, he really does talk about the fact that it can happen in three different ways, and one is by creating a work or doing a deed, and that one is kind of self-explanatory. You know, when you do something that really contributes to, whether it's you know you're, whether you're uh, defining the the theory of relativity or or coming up with an invention that will change, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. I, the iPad. <laughs> or something like that, right? Um, number two is by experiencing something or encountering someone. And and uh, that's the idea of love. Mm-hmm. You know, that impact of... Uh, he talks about love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. No one can become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves them. What would we do without each other, baby? <laughs> and then the third meaning of life is um is around uh the attitude that you take towards unavoidable suffering the thoughts and prayers basically <laughs> well that i mean that comes back to where we started the episode with you know when we're no longer able to change a situation we're challenged to change ourselves and and what does that mean what does um, it mean really though to change yourself how do you do that do you know what i mean like just in layman's terms like what if you're going to change yourself you're going to change who you are you're making decisions, right? You know, you're well, making decisions about your life. It's how, yes, and how, how you're going to deal with, if something is, you know, how is, are you going to make the best of it or are you going to make the worst of it? When he right. talks about the idea of suffering, he was challenged actually by, um, he mentions there was an elderly general practitioner who, uh, who consulted him about uh, he had severe depression because his wife had passed away. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't overcome the loss of his wife. And it had been two years 
And he really struggled with how to help him with that. Like, how do I help you with finding meaning in that? And so what he asked him, he said, what, what would have happened if you had died first and your wife would had, have had to survive you? And, and the man said, well, it would have been terrible for her. She would have suffered a lot. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you see then, uh, by your suffering, you've spared her. You know, yeah. by by you being the one who outlived her, you helped you, her out in surviving her and mourning her. You've saved her some suffering. So he felt that in some way, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning. Yeah, because that makes sense. The meaning, you know, is in the, is that you've, you've done a itself. sacrifice to prevent somebody else's suffering. That's really interesting, though. Like when people say they're going to change their lives, like you know. Uh, what does that mean? Like, does it mean incrementally? Are you going to go a different place for your coffee? Like that, that really does change your life, you know, like those are things, but then you can do huge, huge changes in your life. You know, you could sell all your possessions and go on a uh, worldwide travel, you know? Well, I mean, in the context of Viktor Frankl, he went through the ultimate suffering yeah. experience of the concentration camps. And although he had already had in his mind the idea of logotherapy yeah. and this means of it, it became all the more powerful because of his experiences. And then I think about how he was able to change the lives of so many people through this book. Let me ask you how this book changed your life. It's a book. It's, it's words. Words are powerful. How did, how did those powerful words change your life? Oh, I feel like we've got more to talk about with this book, and we're coming in on okay, the end of part two. We got a minute. So, <laughs> you want me to talk about You got a minute to say life? how your life has changed from this book. Well, I do want to. I want to talk about a few more things around it. So, I think, I think maybe we do need a part three. We're going then. to need a part three. I still want to talk a little bit around the idea of how we yeah. can envy the elderly rather than envy the youth. Yes. Um, and there, yeah, there's still some more okay. meat in this book. It's settled, and, part three. And those are part of the keys of why I found this book so special for oh, me. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you in part three. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can catch up on past episodes at infoquench.com. Or just about anywhere else you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And help spread the word about InfoQuench. Till next time. time.